Welcome to the ASBMR Speaks podcast. My name is Dr. Suzanne John Deber, president of ASBMR, and I'm proud to present the only podcast dedicated to discussing the latest developments in bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal research. ASBMR is the society of basic, translational, and clinical scientists that make observations that spark discovery with flow from the bench to the bedside and the bedside to the bench. Our initial series, Pathways, ASBMR Stories of Discovery, is hosted by Dr. Michael Econs, Distinguished Professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Throughout this three-part series, we'll speak with pioneers in the discovery of FGF23. We'll explore dysregulation of FGF23 in renal failure, inhibiting FGF23 for treatment of X-linked hypophosphatemia, and the interplay of FGF23 and iron. FGF23 is just one of numerous pathways that have been elucidated by ASBMR scientists, shaping fundamental understanding of bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal biology, and then harnessing this knowledge to improve human health. Be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to tune in to future episodes. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to our second of three ASBMR podcasts on FGF23. This is Michael Econs from the Endocrine Division at Indiana University, and I'll be your host for these podcasts. The goal of these podcasts is to not just simply review some exciting science, but also learn about what led to the progress. Today's guest, Dr. Kenneth White, is well known to the ASBMR community. Ken is Professor of Medical and Molecular Genetics at Indiana University. He's made numerous contributions to our field, particularly with regard to FGF23. Ken, welcome. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. Thank you, ASBMR, for uh, having this series. It's uh, a new adventure, and it's really been fun so far. So thanks for hosting. So just to start us off, what made you decide to move to Indiana to pursue the field? Yeah, that's a good question. I was always interested in genetics, as long as I can remember, you know, just science in, in high school and, you know, college. And, and really for me, I think in graduate school, when they identified the dystrophin gene as a gene for Duchenne's, that really was neat. And that was in the true RFLP era, as you know, back when it was really done <laughs> the hard way, just grinding it out. And uh, that was that was early in grad school. It really, you know, sort of got my attention. And then uh, it's it, it several factors for being here, I think. And uh, Peter Friedman, who was a fantastic mentor for me at Dartmouth. I mean, he's just a great guy. Peter always had his ear to the ground as the kind of the latest thing and newest technology. And you know, he was going after a calcium channel at the time. And, uh, you know, I know he met you at uh, AIM meeting in Colorado, which is ASBMR sponsored. And he said, you know, Mike gave this fantastic talk about uh, cloning of a new gene at the time, PEX, which uh, turned out to be the gene for XLH. And he said, you know, Mike's just doing some cutting edge work. I know you're interested in this. And I really wanted to stay in bone and mineral because Mike and I were reading all the same papers, but for completely different reasons. Mike was reading phosphate papers for kind of a bone kidney angle. I was really kidney kind of physiology angle. 
But when we ended up getting together, we realized we had so much in common from what we were looking at. And, you know, it was, it was kind of a leap, you know, Gen X is open-ended. And I think when I got here, I heard the phrase like, you know, if you don't find the gene you love, love the gene you find, you know, so it was, it, it was risky and uh, it was fun at the time to always be learning new stuff. And, you know, there was really some neat stuff going on kind of on all over the country at the time, really using kind of molecular biology and physiology. In our field, Ed Brown had found the calcium sensor. Steve Hebert was using RNA library technology to identify transporters up and down the distal tubule that they knew the functional properties of, but we never knew the molecular sequence. So they used these RNA libraries to narrow down, you know, based on the physiology and injecting oocytes. I mean, it's just an amazing time. And Harold Eubner and Ernestina Schapani cloned the PTH receptor. And then subsequently, mutations were found in all these genes, leading to, you know, disorders of PTH, calcium phosphate handling, transporter defects that define different types of kidney pathology. So it was really fun for me to think about getting into that field, especially with uh, someone like you, Mike, that was just really making it happen. Um, oh, thanks. I, no, I, I have true. to say... You know, you never know. This is uh, some of the podcast is, is about career things, and you never know what's going to happen and what's going to influence your career. But I gave a talk at the small meeting, uh, AIM, and it, it turned out to be one of the biggest talks of my career because you came up to me and said, I have this graduate student who'd make a great postdoc for you. And it really uh, worked out beautifully, but it really does show that going to meetings and giving talks and the like, you never quite know what will develop. The next question I have for you is uh, regarding your first aha moment with FGF 23. When was the first time you kind of looked and thought, looked at the data and said, wow, this is really going to be big? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think that, uh, you know, I think we all have like a kind of a laundry list of several, but I think one for me was seeing, like at the time, you know, we were doing all the sequencing by hand. We were sort of doing RFLPs. The uh, Human Genome Project was kind of beginning. And I mean, and lucky for us, you know, they're starting at the top of every chromosome, the P-arm and coming down. And I still think that seeing on the gel that very first ADHR mutation, the autosomal dominant mutation mm -hmm. in FGF23, I think that was the one where the bands are staggered on the sequencing gel and you see two bands lined up and you know that someone has a missense mutation in a dominant disease. I mean, you just cannot believe your eyes. <laughs> and I think I ran it twice before showing it to you <laughs> just to make sure I didn't fold the gel like I was known to do, you know? So, uh, <laughs> so I think that was, I think that was a big one. Um, I think I, that was just like, wow, you know, it's not if we're going to get it, but now how, or how and what are we going to do? I mean, it was just an amazing time and, Everything was new and, you know, you were so enthusiastic about just trying stuff. I mean, that was the part that I really enjoyed. You know, I tell my trainees, like, we spent all your money and <laughs> just really had fun, you know, doing experiments that, you know, you just let us do. And, you know, I, I try and take that piece and bring it to my lab now where just like, just try it, you know, let's come up with a plan and let's just see what happens. And uh, I think that for me with FGF23 was a big one. And the second one, I think, was when we were collaborating on the ELISAs and when they ran serum 
from chronic kidney disease patients. And the blue in the well turned black almost immediately because it was so high. And we were like, well, maybe it was, you know, sort of low renal function and FDF 23 was getting backed up in the system. And then we realized, you know, every single patient looks like this. I mean, I think that was where we went from sort of the rare disease to like, holy cow, you know, what does this mean? And uh, I mean, I think your insight on trying all these things, you know, really made it fun for everybody. And, and that aha moment was, was due to that inspiration, I feel like. Nice. What, what, uh, what motivated you to get into iron and FGF 23? Yeah, I, we had the ADHR mouse for a long time. And CJU, who did a fantastic job back when we were we're doing this the old way, you know, targeting hundreds of clones. And he really struggled. I mean, not struggled, but he did a great job in a tough project at the time to make a missensitization was tough. And he did an awesome mm-hmm. job when he had invisible markers and he did a fantastic job. And so I think, you know, with your work and Paul McHenry on characterizing HR, ADHR phenotype, we knew it, you know, sort of came on at puberty came on a pregnancy and we really didn't understand this. And I mean, for a long, long time, this is totally my fault as a PI, we were injecting the mice with like estrogen and testosterone and all these hormonal angles that turned out to be like totally wrong, but we were just trying everything. And then I think some of the Australian groups really started to notice that iron carboxymaltose increased FGF 23, but then, you know, in talks with you and, and others, we realized that puberty and pregnancy are actually associated with anemia. I mean, it's a paper from, I think, 1942 in the JCI that showed this first in, in pregnant women. And so we actually tried both diets on the ADHR mice. And, you know, we only published the low iron diet that turned on FGF 23, but we actually tried both. And I, I think we sort of sat on that for a long time. And so it's been very rewarding to see that, yourself and Eric Immel have, you know, used iron therapy to cure these patients. I mean, it's just been an amazing ride where for, uh, with, you know, barosumab being developed for XLH, you know, we weren't sure what to do with kind of ADHR and their treatment. We weren't sure how they were going to respond. And then to find out that it turned out to be iron and that they could be cured this way, I think was just really great patient care. It was one of the more enjoyable aspects of my career, I have to say, to come up with a low-dose all-iron being a therapy for, for these folks that really gotten us the uh, FJ23. And so it was nice to get back to the, to the families that uh, got us there. How do you keep your research going? Uh, how do you develop and think of new angles and new collaborators, new ideas? Yeah, I mean, it seems like lately we've just tried to look for like interesting connections. Like, you know, we're sort of taught in endocrinology to look for feedback loops, feedback loop after feedback loop. So we've been trying to look at some of these connections that have to do with iron and FDF 23 and then things downstream of that, that we never thought would be involved, such as inflammation. Recently, some, some of our work has shown if you cure the iron defect in a CKD mouse model, you can really drop FDF 23. So, you know, we're hoping things like that turn out to be important, you know, for care in the future where FGF 23 has been associated with cardiac hypertrophy 
and some other not nice things in the body where we hope that these kind of ideas may somehow help in the future. And I think those are the things that keep us going. Also, another thing is that I think about is sort of making yourself a little uncomfortable tends to be new. Like you're never, once you're really comfortable, I think, then you're probably going to miss something. You know, you kind of got to keep yourself on edge. The, the people that I look up to are always sort of adapting and changing and moving with the times as opposed to sort of doing the same thing over and over. So I think that's been a good lesson for me is watching the people that I respect sort of change with the times. And, you know, you sort of take your chance on an extra employee when, you know, mm-hmm. maybe at the end of the year, you may not be able to cover them, but they're super good and you want them. And then you find a way to make it happen. You know, those are the things that sort of keep you going. And I think also, you know, we've taken on some genomics lately that's, you know, a bit uncomfortable for me. We really have to trust our collaborators that, that look at the data. You know, we can generate this very quickly, but analyzing it is the key. And that's where I think, you know, really looking for good collaborators is important. And I think I've had a, a great lab. I mean, I just, uh, everybody has been motivated in one way or another to really have fun and work hard. And I think getting them excited about what they're doing and, and showing them the patients that are just waiting for our results, I think is the thing that keeps me looking into new areas for them. Like I want them to be excited about it. And I think that that has carried over into some of the stuff that we've been doing lately. And everybody I've had has just been great. And they they just do, I try and get them to do things that they may be a little uncomfortable with so that they get to learn that sort of feeling. Mm-hmm. We're always challenging ourselves. Great, great. So um, science is always changing, obviously, uh, but there are certain universal things. One, being passionate, being open and being able to pick the right project. What advice can you share, particularly for young investigators who are listening in the audience about how to pick the right project? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. And I think that it, it's a little bit different at each level, kind of where you are, kind of between graduate student, postdoc, assistant professor, technician, research associate. I think good ideas come from everywhere. And I would say, you know, as a student, I think what I did is I picked an area that I felt was important to me. Like in Peter's lab, really the molecular biology of the kidney was really unknown at the time. So I felt like that area was interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being in a project that I liked and it turned out to be a a great experience. So I think as a student picking an area you wanna be in, and then what I think you should do is maybe adapt your project into something that you're passionate about. Find a way to make a technique that you want to learn. Find a way to bring in an aspect that, you know, you enjoy about the project, some new piece of data, some new connection. Always be thinking, help your PI get through these things because we're busy writing, grant writing, networking, all those kind of things. So really bring a piece to the puzzle that maybe people aren't thinking about. Don't just let the PI sort of dictate what you're going to do. Of course, you're going to talk about it and work on it together, but try and bring in these other ideas or techniques that you're going to have fun with. I would say as a fellow, I mean, I think there you really got to pick an area that you're truly excited about because you're going to be in the lab a lot. And I would pick a mentor that you feel are going to help you with your career, where their 
excited for your success and boosting your career ahead. They're going to introduce you to their colleagues. They're going to take you to meetings. They're going to help you write good papers. They're going to get funding for your work. I mean, this is a critical step. And I think there you're going to need to show productivity as a fellow. You're really, that's going to take you to the next level. Good papers, good talks, good connections, being a good writer, being a good presenter, being a good sort of networking, good colleague. I mean, I think those are all the things that you kind of learn at the postdoc level. And I'd say as a PI, it's always tough starting. I mean, there's really no, if you're starting a new project, trying to gauge where you are on the funding scale, you know, do they hate what I'm doing? Do they love what I'm doing? You know, until you start writing those papers and submitting your grants to study sections. I mean, I think what you can do is go to more senior colleagues that are working in tangential fields and say, what do you think of this? You know, what, what about mm-hmm. this idea? Right. I mean, we bounce. It's a little harder now with COVID, but I think bouncing the ideas off people, but the true scale comes from the level of paper you get, how to study section feel about your grants, things that give you feedback about the level of science that you're doing. And if it's below where you should be, you know, what can I do to get it there? Or if I'm okay, great, I'm off to the races. But until you get that feedback from people that, you know, are judging your work in a way that it, it can be often difficult to tell. Well, but I want to come back to to something that you said earlier, I think it's critical to get out of your comfort zone. Mm. Uh, if you need a new technique to, to explore in the area, then you need to learn that technique or collaborate with someone who has that technique. And when you collaborate with people, you have to know enough about what they do that you can ask them the right questions and uh, intelligently. And you can't keep doing the same thing. The other thing that I, I, I said that I think uh, is is very important is to to really, as a young person in someone else's lab, not just do what the PI wants you to do and to really be coming and asking questions and really having a lot of back and forth between the various members of the team. And this goes for everybody on the team, technicians, students, postdocs, PIs, collaborators, et cetera, everybody has to be open and um, honest with each other to kind of ask good questions. Why are we doing it this way? What could, could we be doing this better? Finally, I'd, I'd, I'd like to ask you just um, what are the resources that have kind of helped you along the way? What have you read or listened to that most inspired you? And what's your one takeaway for our audience today? I think for me lately, I've been reading the top papers in our field. I mean, that for me usually shows you what techniques are most relevant. And I look at the figures and I say to myself and our our trainees, people in our lab, what do we need to do to get here? These are the people who we are looking up to. They are doing cutting edge stuff. They're taking things in different directions. They're using new molecular bioinformatic techniques. What on our stuff can look like this figure or add to it. I think mostly I've been reading these kind of like, you know, PNAS nature level, nature communication mm-hmm. level papers where, you know, this is, re- there's some great stuff out there now in, you know, genomics, mixing that with the power biology and bioinformatics. And, you know, more and more of our students, I mean, this is, this is uncomfortable for me. This is a new area, but I think that reading the papers really digesting 
what people are saying, going to people that are in these fields and saying, look, can we do this? This is the problem I have. This is what I'm trying to associate. And usually what happens is you get that question answered and they say, oh, by the way, there's this, this piece too. What do you think of that? Like, oh, of course, you know, that makes sense with, you know, piece X that I didn't think about. So I think really reading these papers and I think also challenging you know, the people in our labs and our collaborators to be as good as possible. You know, let's not just settle. Let's do the extra experiment. Let's go the extra mile. Let's really make the figures pretty. You know, if it's not pleasing to you in your eye, then it's not going to be to anyone else either. Mm-hmm. So I think that's mostly what's been inspiring me is to say, look, we want to get to the next level, whatever that is. We're constantly going to be pushing ourselves Let's see what is in the literature and how can we, you know, be that good or, or, or better in some way. And I think the takeaway, sorry, is, uh, is again, the passion piece for me is, you know, you're sort of, you know, it's, it can be a long road and you know, the little things do add up to big things. So really don't quit if you feel it's important as, as one thing and like hard work rarely gets punished in some way you know working hard and staying at it even if you're off just a little off track just a little bit you will use that information or that data some other way you you don't know how you don't know why but it's impossible to plan everything you know i would say pick an area you're excited about you'll find your way pick a mentor that um you guys are kind of on the same page there are matches that you know, seem to work and bring th- something to the table. Think about your project and how you're going to make it exciting and move ahead to you. So that's what I would say. I don't want it to be too clicheing about picking something you love, but uh, for me, honestly, like an area of like genetics is exciting to me. So things within genetics may not be as exciting to me, but other things I'm truly passionate about. Well, that was great. Thank you very much, Ken. Terrific discussion, and thank you for joining us. Sure, it was my pleasure. Thank you for hosting these uh, podcasts. It's a, it's a new venture and uh, very exciting. So thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASBMR Speaks podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast streaming platform, and stay tuned for the next installment of our series on FGF 23, coming soon.